you know, it's been a it's been a minute since we've done an uh, an episode. What was it? You were uh, you were uh, redoing the kitchen or something? What, what, what was happening? No, you were in person with me, and we were recording a horror f- film flick. No, nah. But in between, I feel like we were trying to schedule something, and then we couldn't because you were. Uh, oh God, I don't know what it was. Was it the basement? Were you doing Were you doing work on the basement or something? I can't even remember. You did. You did something in between. <laughs> on the house. <sighs> Like had a baby. There's Is that the what you're one. talking about? That's that's the one. <laughs> But now the ways of measuring difference are so mm, mm, there. Mm. There are there are more variables than there are people you even know. Mm. If you if you recognize, I know nobody with this characteristic. Then to be exposed to that and to have a friend that's like that, or or or, that's diversity. Hello, everybody. Welcome back into the Zal, the only podcast that is so unintelligible it doesn't need to be concerned about being replaced by ChatGBT. My name is David Grossbaum, and joining me, as always, is the only coastal elite that apparently doesn't have classified documents in his garage, Adam Valen Levinson. Adam, welcome to the Zal. Thank you so much. And um, if I had a garage, oh, the <laughs> things I'd keep in there. <laughs> Obviously, throughout all the excitement, we had a lot of very beautiful well-wishers um, from Indianapolis and from outside of Indianapolis. But the one that I understood the least was when Adam texted me to say congratulations, and I and I quote, 18,000 Mazel Tov. Were you uh, bidding on my new child? <laughs> what was the 18,000 about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you can pay somebody in Mazels. I just figured, <laughs> look, it, normal... Uh, somebody has a birthday, that's one, but you I thought deserve... there was like a little uh, semicolon in between there. They're like, $18,000! Oh, by the way, Mazel Tov. Hey! The baby looked, look at this baby! This baby's <laughs> worth about 17000 and 17500 going once for 18000 Hold! You know, for my other children as newborns, I would happily have sold them, but this one is actually poo-poo-poo without any evil eyes, <laughs> but he's not crying so much, so so we're going to keep him. You know they got the tech to listen to podcasts now these ones, your little, your little girls. Oh my gosh, they're going to go through the archives and they're going to be doing a lot of slam poetry, let's just say. After listening to the archives of the Zal, there's going to be a lot of slam poetry therapy. <laughs> Well, so, mazels, you know, then now you just get one, okay? I'll put it in a trust. When they go to college, they crack it open. 18,000 in 15 years is probably going to be worth about, you know, a a bagel and a half. all of these college administrators, maybe you'll be able to get a quarter of your tuition paid for it. Hey! Hi, education jokes, everybody. Brought to you by a lack of sleep. Use that for yourself. In this week's episode, we decided to focus on a topic that I think lots of podcasting types touch on 
and we wanted to give our own our own look at it. It's an analysis of the unfortunate fact, in our opinion, that society has grown more and more compartmentalized into subgroups and sub-subgroups and sub-sub-subgroups where people aren't hanging out so frequently with people that are unlike them. So we just wanted to touch upon that from a sociological perspective. That's where Adam comes in and what Jewish thought has to say about it as well. You always say sociology and you say, I'm the only one that's involved. You, you literally lead a congregation. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the, the, you're sociologizing more than I am sitting, sitting in an office with a book written by a guy from 100 years ago, you know? Maybe, because I feel like if you ride an airplane, that doesn't make you a pilot. I'm subject <laughs> to the I'm subject to the flows of sociology as a you know, as a recipient of it, but I don't necessarily understand what's going on. I'm really starting to understand why so many uh, flight attendants have said, "Hey, you can't go up there." This guy in slippers <laughs> does not really look uh, piloty. <laughs> so in my thought, I see two new dynamics at play which are causing people to be sticking more and more to their own limited sphere and and i see these two everywhere and because they're so pervasive therefore obviously their effect is greater and greater the first one and you tell me if this makes any sense is social media i think because people are exposed much more to the lives of or the external lives of other people they are much more aware of the of the cool of the in style and the vogue etc so what ends up happening they know what's the hyper cool thing what's in style and therefore they kind of form their groups slash their own personalities into this very very narrow group which ends up being a very dull gray but because they know they know so keenly what is in that's what they're gonna that's where they're gonna surround themselves with and emulate whereas in the olden days where social media was less of a thing you kind of had your own idiosyncrasies you had your weird picadillos hobbies whatever and even if you wanted to be cool you just were so less educated on the art of being cool on the art Mm. of being of fitting in that um there was a lot more remnants of everyone's individuality yeah i mean it it definitely does. I think that the most important thing to to recognize is that there is no objective cool and there never will be. There's n- now quantifiable metrics for things that are popular in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But the the ways that groups form themselves, I think now is, like you're saying, not so much as this necessarily bottom-up organic development of a tradition, a culture that you're then part of because, hey, this is where we mm-hmm. came from. But but even more designed around the fact that it is different from that m- more everybody thinks it's cool kind of thing. And sometimes that means, yeah, I'm going to go right towards that center. And sometimes it means, no. I want to find myself at this particular distance for these reasons, or mm-hmm. here's this facet of the cool thing, and I'm not doing that. All meaning is made in difference. All meaning, everything. Mm-hmm. But this makes it so much more that in that in that most broad level. 
I understand what you're saying, and I agree with you. It's there's there's no actual cool, but what I mean by cool is the perceived cool. For sure, but even perception, it just it's always coming down to the fact that we are understanding our own selves and our own preferences and our own tastes in comparison to something else. Making that comparison on the scale of here's my community, here we are, and everybody's got the white pecket fence, and okay, I want to do that because the consequences of not having that are pretty high, or I'm going to be the guy that doesn't do that, that doesn't wear a suit to church. Right, which is your own way of becoming predictable. Yeah, you become predictable in a certain way, but also maybe you find your community once you leave that small place, and you go, oh my God, all these other people are like that. Now we have access to millions of different ways of existing and so it's not so clear-cut what you're defining yourself against i think and i think we'll probably those will probably keep coming up today but that it's so clear to know it's so clear to try and figure out what you are defining yourself against when there's a million different things that might totally fit you or not and all these different Mm -hmm. variables and you're not just talking about hey what do i wear you're talking about what do i eat what kind of music do i listen to what kind of this 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 Everything is up for grabs. Mm. And everything is a point where you can measure difference from that thing that we all kind of recognize as like Beyonce level, you know, Grammy mm-hmm. crushing. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I think I understand what you're saying. You, um, I think. That's about, that's about as much. <laughs> yeah, that's about as much as I could hope for. You know? <laughs> no, that's not a flaw in you. That's a, just all these, all these articulations are so helpful to me because just like we were saying before with the pilot metaphor, I know the conclusions. I see how everything ended up, but to have very clear explanations of the why is, I think, helpful for my own thinking. Another dynamic of social media is the accessibility. And this is, again, uh, I don't have any data to back this up. Do we ever have data to back it up? Very, very rarely. Clickety click, 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 click. <laughs> well, the, the numbers have gone from this uh, <clears throat> to a higher number of <clears throat> units. But uh, it, it makes sense logically yep. that with the pervasiveness of the internet, you have access to lots and lots of people that fit into very, very narrow subgroups. So let's say, for example, me for an easy example, right? So I have this level of religiosity of this particular religion. I lean here politically. I like this type of music. I care about, you know, this sports team. And because I have 6 billion people on my fingertips, I could surround myself on the internet with these people. But those people don't boil over into real life because if I would use that Venn diagram in my in my real life, I would have zero people to hang out with because there are so few people in my proximity that fit all those that tick all those boxes. So excuse, I guess, the expectation of friends, right? So you have mm-hmm. uh, ten thousand people, which is way more than enough friends that tick all of your boxes or my boxes, whoever's boxes online. But then they go go out of the internet and they go into work or into the job or into their shul or church or whatever, and they say, "Wait a second, there's no one here like me, right?" And I, therefore, I can't be friends with them. So the expectation was set so high for how comparable people need to be, how similar people need to be, that they have a hard time connecting with others when they don't find that similarity. Yeah, that the differences are now just, you're able to measure them on so many, by so many different metrics. So where you might have originally gone in going, hey, uh, how's your foreskin? You know, (laughs) and you go, 
you don't have one uh okay come and have a nosh and and that you know that was like a pretty bit you know and then there's like three other ones at that level and you're like all right great we're ready to go but now the ways of measuring difference are so mm, mm, there mm. there are there are more variables than there are people you even know mm. i think that's that's what what has become super different and i'll just say like as much as i felt uncomfortable by the development and i think felt a lot of tension in terms of how to how to relate social media i don't think is this fundamental change it's just it may be an exponential one in terms of size and all the things that we're talking about but there have been so many moments through thousands of years of history where people are going oh man this is really going to mess up the way we're doing stuff i think that we have crossed some mm-hmm. thresholds but like this this kind of dynamic of oh my god we have so more exposure more ways mm-hmm. of measuring difference more ways of feeling alienated from the people we felt mm-hmm. close to or 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 uh, it's been happening for a minute right right I guess the question then is, when does quantity become quality? When does a quantitative change become a qualitative one? Which I don't know the answer to. There's a cool thing that I sometimes quote to try and sound smart. And then it's like, don't push me any harder. <laughs> like if I had a hyperlink on my forehead, you could press that. But I don't. But there's this guy, this anthropologist named Dunbar. And he studied primates. And he basically was studying like the size of a brain the amount of of neurological connections our brains can actually make like a computer like the processing power it takes to hold on Mm -hmm. to a certain number of close relationships and they're sort of orders of that and the basic idea was like eh, around 200 250 like that's about the max of people relationships where you could say have a basic understanding i know their name i know kind of where they are i know a few things about them and then like 50 where it's a lot more okay this is this and then you know 15 where it's even closer more nuclear and after that you, you start having to lose data on your hard drive upload it to the cloud mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. of like i don't know i don't i don't know and it's you yeah. know it's why, you know, politicians sometimes seem superhuman. Bill Clinton was really good at this, of like remembering names or just having somebody like everybody does, having somebody in their ear going, uh, that's uh, Mrs. Rothstein. Uh, you had, uh, you know what I mean? You had blintzes at her, at her daughter's bat mitzvah seven years ago, and now she's at Brown. And you go, ah, how's your daughter at Brown? And they go, oh, my God, this person is superhuman, right. like quite mm-hmm. literally superhuman. Just beyond the bandwidth and you need to start outsourcing once you reach a certain point. So those are the two changes on the internet that I think are causing this. And there's probably many more. These are the ones I see most just because I have a certain line of work. But the third one is the the fact that there are fewer third places. If someone wrote a book, we'll, we'll link it, whatever. It basically says that humans or for the longest time had a third place. It was home, work, 
and then a third place that they just got together for the sake of getting right. together. So it was like, if, you know, for most people 50 years ago, it was your synagogue or your church. If for many Americans, it was the barbershop. You know, you didn't go to the barbershop to get your hair cut. You went to the barbershop to socialize. Yeah, or a bar. Yeah, the bar was one. And now there are fewer and fewer third places. And probably the things that we were mentioning before also contributed to the fact that there are fewer third places. But but that's the fact. 100%. And in a third place, I think that the energy is you just kind of hang out with people because they ended up in the same place you ended up. And that was the only criteria. The actual threshold to the building was the social threshold as well. You walk over this threshold, you're in. We're going to talk to you. It wasn't so much you're less cool or you don't share my politics. You're in shul and you're saying, Amen, Yehesh, Me, Rabba, and you're going to have herring at the Kiddush with me. I don't care, dude. I'm, I'm just going to talk to you. Yeah. And the same was true with that barbershop. And, and obviously within the barbershop, there was friction. I'm sure if a Republican met a Democrat or a Lakers fan met, met a Celtics fan inside the barbershop, obviously that friction came out, but it never prevented the interaction in the first place the place was the place was bigger Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i i feel this way now i mean at the at the end of football season and and we're not exactly sure when the episode will come out but i am so that the game went (laughs) and when people say well what's the you know point of sports there's a lot of people that are just what is the point and it is kind of it's sure it's sometimes a physical thing yes it can draw you into a bar maybe you can go to a game but but larger than that it's an abstract third place that all you have to do is just say yeah i'm in i'm a fan now Mm -hmm. Uh, i just i'm in it and you've now found ways to cross you know ethno-national lines and classes divides and Mm -hmm. political divides and whatever because at least in a city like Philadelphia, that that transcends all mm-hmm. of, all of those things. Yeah, that's that's really well said. You know, I thought about following sports recently when we, you and I were talking about it, and I was like, "Oh, it's just a good neutral. It's just a good neutral. So why get rid of it?" And the way you just formulated it now, and I'm convinced it's more than just a neutral. Like it's a net positive. It's so important. And I guess if we had to be really specific, an abstract third place could work so long the criteria, this is just me thinking on the fly, so long the criteria for that third place are really limited. In your in your example, you just need to be an Eagles Eagles fan. That's it, right? But once it's like sure. this it. third yeah. place is Eagles fans that have, you know, cashmere sweaters and enjoy hot dogs on Thursdays, in which case you're just running into all the original problems that we were discussing. Well, th- I mean, there is, there are versions of that too. I, I'm not so sure about the, uh, yeah, about, but there, but there, there are versions of that also, which is like, there's a different feeling of being part of a group that has a hundred thousand people, a million people mm-hmm. in it, and a group that's, you know, defined by like, here were the fifteen members of the, you know, Bavarian Brew Council, <laughs> and were the, you know, what I mean. Where, look, I, I can't explain all the Netflix shows I watch and why, <laughs> but uh, the Bavarian <laughs> I feel like Netflix just throws dick at the wall, and it, it's like take a noun, take an adjective, take a place, throw them at the wall. One in every one thousand will work, and the rest we're just gonna spend a billion dollars in creating them. And if they don't work, you know, we have we have the rights to them. If it don't work, I got one word for you: Oktoberfest. Great, run, go. <laughs> <laughs> If anything else around it, uh, you know, there's going to be beer there. So, Okay, so that's the problem, as we described, and maybe the causes that we that we discussed are right. 
there's probably many other causes to this problem. That's what I think. Do you have any other ideas to what could what's causing this isolation? I I mean I really think so much of it comes from a an an inability to even categorize the ways in which you're different and similar from some kind of norm because there's so many competing norms that you agree with. You go, ah, but I do feel mm-hmm. this, but I do feel that, but I do feel that. And then there's no group really that fits all of the different ways in wow. which you want to be different and similar. And so you're kind of stuck. Like you're you're honestly like existentially f- Like you're socially in a place where you go, uh, I don't even want these things to mean this much anymore. I've got all these political opinions mm-hmm. and I've got these feelings about what you're, how, how you recycle plastic and mm-hmm. I have feelings about what I feel about sports and this sport opposed to that sport. I can't just be a sports mm-hmm. fan and this and this and this and this. What do I do? I'm going to disagree mm-hmm. with enough people that I'm going to feel mm-hmm. isolated. And I think that leads to, I think that that leads to people searching for ways in which some of these meaningful things can become less meaningful. That's, that's, or, or too meaningful, or too meaningful, or too meaningful that they, that they, right, that they overpower everything else. And then, and then you find clarity, you find some clarity that way. This episode of The Zal is brought to you by Netflix's new series, Love is Blintz. From the same producers of Zadie Finds a Lady comes a hybrid dating cooking series where contestants vie for their soulmate not with their eyes or ears but with a taste of their grandmother's blintzes you may say what is love anyway we'll show you every half an hour for 673 bingeable half hours it's a thin rolled pancake filled with cheese or fruit and then fried or baked love isn't blind it's blintz yummy in your tummy and it's made by mummy do we have there's too many tags <laughs> thank you maximilian for that for that advertiser introduction if you have an advertiser that you'd like to introduce us to don't hesitate we have a pack of stickers with your name on it so we just described the the problem and i don't think we need to do a lot of explaining as to why this description is a problem I think it's pretty clear, according to everybody, like diversity is a good thing. Diversity of thought is a good thing. Hanging out with people unlike you is a good thing. Judaism, obviously, we're always talking about loving one another. But I think what I wanted to get to and touch on different topics is not just why hanging out with people that are unlike you falls into the category of loving everybody. What I really want to focus on is saying not just love everybody, which happens to include people that are unlike you, but I want to discuss how specifically hanging out with people that are unlike you has its advantages and has its perks. There's the technical aspect. That's the first obvious one. Is If you really want to be strict about minimizing your interactions with people that are unlike you, you're not going to have anybody left. If you really have an eye to what makes us different and that is bothersome to you, you truly will find a differentiating factor in almost everybody. And, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, we're saying it as a joke and we're, we're quoting Robin Williams, but that's kind of what's happening. Just going back to what we said before, is, you know, loneliness is, is going up. I don't think it's in the name of racism. There's other isolating factors over here. Uh, with some people, it is racism, but with other people, it's not. For most people, I would, I would argue it's not. But they're still extremely lonely and not hanging out with people that are unlike them, even though it's not like an ideological thing. Robin was talking about it societally but it kind of happened by default now like we're looking around and just loneliness is at an all-time high and people just don't have the the amount of friends that they used to have and friends are 
even the ones they have are experiencing less deep friendships, maybe. Mm. So it's definitely a problem and something that should be worked on. Yeah, I wanted to add to the, the first part was that, I mean, this is, I guess, more like name dropping, but, but Freud had called that the narcissism of small differences, which I always found to be just sort of spot on, that... You know, you got uh, two Americans from different places and they go, ah, you're from here, you're from here. And then they're traveling and they meet up in France or something. They go, ah, American, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, this is this. That small difference of we live 500 miles away now becomes zero because they're both 4,000 miles away. Right. Where you grew up. Right. I mean, Freud was a smart guy, apparently, but... Um, (laughs) It's exactly exactly what we're saying in, in five words. Talk about five word definitions. Yeah. We should have him on the. Uh, do we know any of these guys? We have him on the pod. Adam, it's only called name dropping if you actually know them. You can't be like quoting somebody. <laughs> I know. I was like, no, who's he gonna I quote? I Which celebrity? Listen, I went to his. Ha- I went to his museum, and uh, and uh, I just got the feeling if he was around, we would have had a nice time in a little cafe in the bottom. We would have had a good. Not to name drop, but Moses in the Torah. <laughs> <laughs> I did, you know, it's like um, I know what you mean. I know what yeah, you mean. What's the I know word? what you mean. But not to be a pretentious <laughs> hack of, sh- but and the, and then the, the thing that that adds asks for me is, you know, where is the narcissism in that? Like in in a in a morally like problematic way, and where is just the natural reaction? We have to do that as a way of maybe keeping that number down. Of here's how much our brain can form. Mm-hmm. So we we gotta. Mm-hmm. You know, is that what it is? or Right, maybe he just used the narcissism in the most objective academic sense and not in the immoral sense that we usually use it. Yeah, maybe. So another another quote in the Torah, and I, not to name drop, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to let you live that down. <laughs> not to name drop, but the Talmud. <laughs> would always say, All right. would always say, All right. That there are 70 faces to the Torah. So obviously within any religion, but, you know, Judaism also, there's one truth. And we believe that Judaism is the way for a Jew to serve God. But even within this tradition of, you know, everybody putting on tefillin and everyone keeping Shabbat, they still always said there are 70 faces to the Torah, which emphasizes 70 angles or 70 lenses with which one can look at the truth. Which, yes, this truth exists, but we have to recognize that if someone's coming with another lens or from another angle, it's completely valid to articulate their truth or the truth in their way. Let's put it that way. I mean, I just think that that's like already this way of anticipating the problem of saying, don't don't, don't, don't get distracted by what you think of as a small difference. Somebody comes in, they go, this means this, and it's got to mean it like this. You go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Remember, there are almost six dozen yeah, ways yeah. of you know, And even further, the... The Talmud includes, and we take this, and this is obvious now, but if you think about it, it's kind of strange. The Talmud is mostly filled with the wrong opinions, the opinions that weren't accepted. In other words, like in any given area of Jewish law, you could have between two. Well, if if it's a consensus, then there's there's only one opinion, and it's the it'll be the law. But in most cases in the Talmud, it's a description of the disputes about what the law should be, and they would bang through different arguments back and forth, back and forth, and then they would come up with who's right and who's wrong, who Jewish law will be following in the practical sense, and who is wrong in the practical sense. And sometimes there were two argue arguers, and sometimes there's three or four. So if you include all the arguers, most of the opinions in the Talmud are the wrong opinions, and they're still included in the mm-hmm. Talmud. 
Now, why they're included in the Talmud just emphasizes this point, but the advantages of including the wrong opinions, first of all, is to know what's right and wrong. In other words, we shouldn't come 100 years from now, 200 years from now, and say, maybe this, maybe that. You know, you want to have all the opinions on paper and to say, no, the law is according to this one and to that one. So that's the obvious reason why wrong opinions are included in the Talmud. But then it goes into the 70 faces that, like I was saying before, that in other realms or in other angles, yes, from the legalistic, practical side, we could only have one law, and that is the final halacha. But that doesn't mean that the wrong opinions, the one that wasn't accepted according to Jewish law, is no longer Torah. It's no longer a truth. It Mm. is a truth. It just didn't end Mm. up manifesting itself in the practical law. But it's still a truth which is worthy of analysis and understanding and and meditating on, etc. And then the final one, and this is also obvious, is that by being surrounded by people that are disagreeing with you, you're going to be sharpening your own ideas, right? So, you know, going back to that barbershop metaphor— Everyone is uniting in the fact that they decided to go to a barbershop after work. We're uniting in that fact. But even if we decided to discuss kind of a contentious topic within those walls, because we've already accepted each other just by product of the fact that we're inside the barbershop and we know that we'll never permanently burn a bridge, even if we disagree inside of these walls, once that that premise is there— then when you're having at it with one another, you're going to be way smarter Democrat or you're going to be a way smarter Republican if you actually surround yourselves with the other side. Maybe even your Republicanism or your your you know, Democratness, whatever, will be even stronger than than it was before meeting these people. 100%. So just because you, you were forced to to kind of look at it at a lens of someone else's and, and kind of sell it and sharpens your ideas in ways that you wouldn't if you just kept yourself in the echo chamber. Right, like, well, I think we should have locks on cinnamon raisin bagels. No, we know the answer is <laughs> no, but maybe talk to... I mean, this is also how Plato recorded, like, Socratic dialogues, was somebody saying, well, what about this? And just constantly, whatever. And then, you know, eventually they got they wanted to kill the guy because they're like, this is very annoying way to go about the thing. Eh, maybe why people kind of come after Jews every once in a while. It's like, no, no, we're not we're not mad at each other for having the argument. This is just how you get to mm-hmm. a, a, It doesn't even have to be absolute knowledge, though. In certain cases, it maybe does play that role. But just to, yeah, just like you said, to articulate, well, what do I actually believe and why? And I can't just say, well, I don't want to talk. So many people storm out of a room. I don't want to talk. Well, cha- maybe, cha- maybe, you know, it's how you make a sword. It's how you make a you know hard metals you put them mm-hmm. in fire for a long time and now now they can withstand it socrates hey we know that name yeah hey look him up oh it's under socrates oh yeah socrates the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing that's us dude oh yeah Let's bag them. Yeah. We were talking about the other day where people can gather in a diverse context. And let's put a pin in that. Like, what diverse, like, what do you mean? Like, what is, like, qualitatively diverse now? We have this issue all the time where we say, well, it's diversity. But is it, you know? But it. But is it? The, this, like, is it different when people 
gravitate towards something and end up in this sort of organically diverse space as opposed to being told hey you know it's really good if you were to get together with these people and we're going to sort of coerce that in a certain way do you get the same obviously it's not going to be the same but like what are the differences in the reactions that come from that does that you know what i mean yeah, i do i think i understand what you're asking in other words technical diversity or diversity which kind of find something that matters that we could all unite around is that what is that the comparison i guess the two thing the two things that i was just thinking about there were one is where you just find yourself in a space and you go oh my god these people are into this and these people like this sports thing you go i i was into it but now i've met this person who just feels so different from all these ways or somebody saying um maybe like a work training i don't know why that's the example where they go you gotta be exposed to this and this and this do you i don't know maybe this is too simple maybe the answer is just no you you really want to be drawn to something in a way where you're surprised by the fact that you're being exposed to something different and if not you put up walls in a way that prevent you from actually doing that kind of transcending to a higher level going oh you know what it doesn't matter that mm -hmm. I, i'm this and they're that and we're both here i think the strength this is this is going to be an unpopular opinion i don't think people will realize how unpopular this opinion is because it's i'm kind of couching it in in non-political terms but the people that are rah 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 on america slash the people that are boo 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 america associate too much of its greatnesses and flaws with its system, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think a lot of the greatnesses and the difficulties of America is a product of our diversity and, yeah. and just the con contributions of different groups of people, whether, like you were saying before, if it's social or economic or, or ethno or religious, whatever. But because we're this diverse, everyone brings a different gift to the table and it's those it's all those gifts together when they work in harmony we kick ass we're the best country in the world but because we're also so different there's always going to be a lot of this friction that most other countries don't need to figure out because they tend to be of one type in a, in a way that america isn't so yes you know so yes i'm capitalistic yes but you know there's other capitalistic countries that aren't as successful business-wise let's say and it's and i truly think it's our diversity that really propels us along in that department and in many other departments whether it's culture or arts or fill in the blank even religious ideas we have a, so many different voices at the table and together we're, we're we just have all these tools at our disposal american diversity and american assimilation the good type of assimilation is the recognition that everyone has a right to be themselves. In other words, I think assimilating to non-assimilation is the American ideal. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that that's right. The idea that like to actually accept difference and not say the way we assimilate is by flattening difference. Right. So you have to assimilate to an ideal because in all other countries, assimilation means flatten, become Swedish, whatever. Right. And I think the strength of America and the difficulty <laughs> is that our assimilation is to non-assimilation, is to say, no, 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 you're different than me, and I'm absolutely going to accept that. That takes assimilating, too. That idea of saying I'm accepting someone that's totally different than me is an idea that one needs to assimilate, too. So, you know, 
in Judaism, we're anti-assimilation, generally how it's used colloquially, because we want to maintain our individuality and our spirituality and our community, etc. But I think it would be good, and, and, sure. and the Jewish community has done a pretty good job of this, to say the American ideal is that everyone has the right to maintain as many differences as they want. The Zal is also brought to you by JCCISS, the Jewish Community Center of the International Space Station. JCCISSSS is the... Is the <laughs> JCC ISIS. It's actually, that's a diverse one. That's a real. JCC It's I'm actually not trying. JCC is the first Jewish organization based entirely in outer space. It's a home for Jews of all nations to eat food even drier than Hamantaschen and to complain about a room temperature that cannot be changed without multilateral <laughs> agreements between the worlds superpowers. All events are free of charge. Transportation is $72 million. JCC ISS, we never have a minion, but we can definitely see one through the telescope. When you said the word harmony before, I was thinking, you know, this idea of harmony is not incongruent. Like, it can coexist with dissonance in the same way that when, when you're saying, okay, well, these Talmudic conversations or Socratic ones... Like the difference of opinion is not inharmonious. That's still like part of what it is because you've agreed to have the conversation. That's it. That's what harmony is. You're sitting at a table or you're talking or whatever. That's actual harmony in in music. Like the idea of harmony, it's literally called harmony and counterpoint. That's what uh, like the most basic kind of music theory is a bass line might move counter to the melody line. And that's part of creating harmonies. But it's creating harmonies because the things are moving in different directions. And when they all move in the same direction, it, this is, it, we'd need a, a musical example. But if the bass line and the melody are all moving in exactly the same way, it's very boring. Mm-hmm. It sounds very mm-hmm. boring. And th- there's one more thing that I was thinking of, which was that I was talking to a friend about... Um, she had mentioned someone with a DUI and she talked about how like, well, you know, everybody's got the story. Well, it wasn't really that bad. And they stopped by, you know, it was at a uh, checkpoint and they checked for all these other things and technically, okay. And she goes, and it's crazy, like such a big thing, such a giant thing is attached to this. And I went, yeah, but in some contexts, that's not going to mean as much to certain people. It's just because in in the world that you're in, nobody has them mm-hmm. or something. It's not as big a deal. Or like having spent time in jail. It's not as like fundamentally, oh my God, you're not part of my group. Oh my, this is so crazy as a distinctive character. It's not like that for mm-hmm. everybody. And because of that, that to me seems like a real kind of diversity. If you If you recognize, I know nobody with this characteristic then to be exposed to that and to have a friend that's like that or 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 that's diversity whereas oh i you know i grew up over here and you grew up over here but you know we were part of the same income bracket ended up in the same schools and the same kind of job you might be mistaking something that that you might be mistaking something for for proper like intellectual interesting diversity that makes Mm -hmm. people change Mm -hmm. and recognize things as 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 potentially harmonious. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I said this to you when you were visiting Indy. Hearing you say this type of stuff, 
is always shocking to me because the things that people associate with the academy is the exact opposite of those types of things, which makes me wonder, and you already answered this question, is like, who's left? Like, who are the psychos in the academy that are representing everybody? <laughs> like, who, who is these 10 people that are just setting the tone, giving you guys the worst rap? Well, no, I mean, I will say that there is a gravity towards conformity because, first of all, either the stakes are really high or they're really low. I mean, you could say the stakes of academia are just so low. People arguing about things that, that are very hard to ever come out of these bubbles, but they're also high because people's entire jobs are on the line and their careers and everything. And so it's it's hard to pull out of things and the self-selection who goes in. And uh, there's a, 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 WhatsApp, a WhatsApp group over here and people were talking about you know sports and it you know turned out that I was basically the only person that cared at all. And you can have all the critiques, mm. but it wasn't really about the critiques of how football functioned. It was like, I don't get it. What's the point? And that, I went, really? I'm, di- I'm di- uh, diverse right. because of that? <laughs> you were the diversity like, hire. <laughs> like tr- I'm the diversity. You got to have. And listen, guys, it's important as as cultural sociologists or, or whoever thinking about how society functions. If you're just going to come in and go, nah, sport's stupid, no point, I don't get the right. point, there's no right. point, I'm not really particularly right. interested in hearing that, the, you're cutting yourself off from... The overwhelming majority uh, of, real, of the like, world? Yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah, all sports, I'm interested in no sports, but even like American football, you're cutting yourself off from, you don't have to like it, but you have to, just like you said, you have to be willing to come and have the argument and not even art, just conversation Mm. about like, I see why this could be a thing. And maybe you and me at least can coexist and we can coexist harmoniously being on fundamentally different sides of this argument and that becomes really hard like i i think i did alienate myself a little bit i i I, you know i didn't want to jump in i said well just so you know uh kansas city chiefs fans uh have never gotten a job in academia (laughs) somebody goes somebody goes goes, oh yeah and uh and philadelphia fans are known for being really articulate and i went yeah i'll articulate the (laughs) and um you know am i proud of that uh, actually, yes, but you know, but the point is, uh, you know, yeah, you were kicked off of the WhatsApp group, but it was worth it. You went down in flames, but it was it, it, it sent your message. I went down with a message of uh, of uh, diversity, is what that is, with a with a well, <laughs> with a polite message of diversity. Don't make me drink the hemlock. How well do you think that would sell in Yale? Where you'd be like, oh, I'm the diversity hire. Oh, really? You just look like a white Jew. No, no, no. no. I'm a Eagles fan. <laughs> I'm. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm a do the, do the research, guys. Find me another Eagles fan on campus. I haven't seen him. So just to end off with um, a taste of Jewish mysticism, um, in the Tanya, which is the seminal work of the Chabad movement written around 300 years ago, um, it says that all people comprise a body, spiritually speaking comprise one body Love it. and for certain things i might be the head and you might be the foot and for other things i might be the foot and you might be the head and there's elbows and toenails and all that but there's this recognition that we're all part of one body and if you know a body feels pain somewhere it's going to feel pain all over the body and if and if a body is is feeling elated or happy or healthy you know there's very rarely a case where if all other body parts are thriving the other won't thrive if you're if you're getting your vitamins mm-hmm. in one you're getting your vitamins in all so this just real true unity it's not just an ideal but it's an it's a truth 
spiritually speaking, then the later yeah. Rebbe's emphasized something even further. And he said, because this truth is an essential truth, I'm not using essential the way people use it, but I'm saying essential literally, like it's of the essence. When you hang out with Mm -hmm. other people that are more different than you, the more different than you they are, the likelier, and you feel that unity, I should say, the likelier you're going to have an awareness of your essence because you're forced to become aware and and connect to this concept that we're all truly one body one spiritual body and if it's just the the people that we strictly have things in common with you're not forced to lean on this spiritual metaphor the spiritual essence you kind of just say oh i'm hanging out with this guy because he shares my politics or he shares my class or he shares my sports team or whatever but when you have a bunch Mm -hmm. of things that are different from one another and you still manage to hang out what you're really doing is becoming more in tune with this ultimate global essence and therefore also your own essence so if you're talking self-perfection or self-awareness or self-connectivity all these big words come more to the fore when you're hanging with people that are less like you that's what i mean we even have those words baked into our idioms but they they don't seem to come out too much i mean the social body or the the body politic and yet why doesn't that you know it should it should mean kind of the idea of a body politic coming apart is so anathema like that people should be like terrified of that just should say well that's not possible that's me cutting my legs off or coming Mm -hmm. you know my liver's gonna Mm -hmm. fall out and and then and we're somehow like leaning into that, that we're going to kind of split into, you know, little goobers of thing one, thing two, and he's putting in like, that's okay. And it's like, did you see what those Dr. Susie dudes like did to the house? They're going to wreck it. <laughs> we just can't let that happen. You know, guys in Philly, I got to say, look, postseason, you know, at least, at least talk to somebody in the AFC. Do you know what I mean? We don't, don't go to Dallas. Don't go to Dallas. Nobody's asking for you to change your whole life. But <laughs> baby steps. And thank you for listening to another episode of that's all. That was Nassim Zan's something to live for at the beginning and at the end. Stephanie Chow's bass prelude off the album Prime Knot. And a clip from an important conversation uh, between Bill and Ted from their excellent adventure. We hope you had at least an okay adventure with us. And please do share us with your diverse circle. Make your cabal a cub all. (laughs) We'll see you next time. interesting and she said like i'm making short ribs they're amazing and i was like marry me and uh and then she said something like she said something about being a lucky duck and i was like you mentioned duck and like all i can think about is you know peking duck and hoisin sauce so sue me she goes 
the combination of marry me and sue me is exactly what I'm looking for right now. And I went, and nice. she's Jewish, everybody. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, that is a Jewish girl. Marry me, sue me. Marry me and sue me. Which one comes first? Like, In a good Christ. marriage, the suing comes first, I would say. You know, like a little rom-com. In- in a good marriage, assuming one comes first. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly You meet in court. Right. Wow. You meet in court. Extremely good point. You come to, you come to, you, oh, during like, uh, during mediation, you come to like just this crazy love interest. Yeah, and you're so angry. But if the suing, if the suing comes after marriage, then it's, that's, uh, then you're suing. That's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's that's a bad, bad end to it. That's a bad end to it.